Today's episode is a listener request. We're going to take a real deep dive into Dean Coral, otherwise known as the Candyman. You're listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. And welcome to Bad in the Boondocks for the second time. Y'all don't hear the first one because we've had to re-record. Yay! Yay. <laughs> but we are glad that you're here and listening. Yes. A few just a little things. I'm Drew. As always, <laughs> I'm one of your hosts, Stan. And I'm Drew. How's it going? This week... I really want y'all to let us know what you think of us. Get in touch with us either on Facebook, Twitter, or badintheboondocks at gmail.com or stan at badintheboondocks.com or or, or drew at badintheboondocks.com. Right. Did you already say go that you can go to our Twitter? Yes, I did. Uh, And Instagram if you want. And Facebook. I said that. Anyway, and let us know what you think about the podcast. Are our personalities okay? Tell us if we suck. Hopefully we don't, but... If you tell us that we suck, please go to drubrew at (laughs) badintheboondocks.com. No, thank you. (laughs) And are what you would like different? We're going to have merchandise coming up this week because in less than a week actually seven days from now we will be in chicago and that is chicago illinois just kidding illinois yay and we will have t-shirts hats tumblers cups tumblers (laughs) whatever (laughs) and we hope some of y'all are there because we really don't want to be that that you know that loser podcast at the table and that has nobody visiting yeah and you'll get to see my um screwed up haircut if you come yeah he got a messed up haircut we are not gonna go into that no <laughs> um i think that this time um you just have a story for us because it's a little longer one ain't it it's not that i mean it's i mean i'm just saying like there's no need for two stories this time. I guess not. So she I didn't said, do one. Yes, I said that I would save mine for next time. So, All right. So, I so hopefully next week I won't have to have a story. Um, I don't no, know about that. Not, I don't know about since that. Since it's long. No, you chose to do. I am doing. Well, you didn't. You chose. I, no, to no, do no. I'm doing. Why a, I chose a, to. I chose to do request. a listener request. I know that. I know that. Because that's the type of guy I am. Okay. Let's go. And it is, of course, on one that's been done before, Mr. Dean Coral, otherwise, a.k.a. the Candyman, a.k.a. the Pied Piper. Mm-hmm. 
And Mr. Dean Coral was an American serial killer who, along with two young accomplices named David Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley Jr., abducted, raped, tortured, and murdered at least 28 boys in a series of killings that span from 1970 to just 1973 in Houston, Texas. The crimes, which became known as the Houston Mass Murders, came to light after Henley fatally shot Coral. Coral's victims were typically lured to a succession of addresses <coughs> excuse me, in which he resided between 1970 and 1973 with an offer of going to a party or just carrying them for a ride. They would then be restrained by either force or deception, and all of them were killed by either strangulation or shooting with a twenty-two caliber pistol. Coral and his accomplices buried 17 of their victims in a rented boat shed. Four other victims were buried in a woodland near Lake Sam, one further victim was buried on a beach in Jefferson County, and at least six victims were buried on a beach on the Bolivar Peninsula. Coral, also known as the Candyman and the Pied Piper, because he and his family had owned and operated a candy factory in Houston Heights, and he had been known to give free candy to the local children. Don't take candy from strangers. Anybody. Or... From someone you know. That's true. Don't get diabetes. Right. Or rotted teeth. Exactly. At the time of their discovery, the Houston mass murders were considered the worst example of serial murder in American history. Dean Arnold Coral. He was born on December the 24th, 1939, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was the first child of Mary Robinson and Arnold Coral. Coral's father was strict with his son, whereas his mother was very protective of him. Their marriage was marred by frequent fighting and fussing, and the couple divorced in 1946, four years after the birth of their youngest son, Stanley. Not me. Oh, wow. Or is it? Mary Coral subsequently subsequently sold the family home and relocated to a trailer home in Memphis, Tennessee, where Arnold Coral had been drafted into the Air Force after the couple had divorced. Great. And she moved here so that her sons could keep in contact with their father. So that was nice of her. And yeah. the parents yeah. did try to reconcile. Coral was a shy, serious child who seldom socialized with other children, but he had a hu he displayed concern for the well-being of everybody else. He was very thoughtful and cared. But he was a serial killer. Not when he was a child. I guess not, but I mean, as a... I don't know. At the age of seven, he suffered an undiagnosed case of rheumatic fever which was only noted in 1950 when doctors found Coral had a heart murmur. As a result of this diagnosis, Coral was ordered to avoid P.E. <laughs> and it's so funny because whenever I typed that, I was thinking it had stood for premature ejaculation, but it doesn't. <laughs> you it's physical education. <laughs> oh. In 1950, Coral's parents remarried and they moved to Pasadena, Texas. However... 
pew, pew. Because they like to shoot in Texas and it goes, pew, 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 pew. The reconciliation was short-lived, and in 1953, the couple once again divorced. And divorces are always bigger in Texas. Mm-hmm. And the mother once again retained custody of her two sons. Their divorce was decreed on amicable grounds, and both boys maintained regular contact with their father. Really? Yes. Okay. Following the second divorce... Coral's mother married a traveling clock salesman named Jake West, and I'm just going to say... <laughs> a clock salesman? Yes, but I accidentally left the L out, and so it says cock salesman. Are you on serious? On my notes. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a clock salesman okay. named Jake West, and the family moved to the small town of Bidor, where Coral's half-sister Joyce was born in 1955. Upon advice from a pecan nut salesman. <laughs> How do you you get can't these, make this up. How do you get these people, man? Coral's mother and stepfather started a small family candy company named Pecan Prince. No, it's a candy company. Mm-hmm. And they originally operated from the garage of their home. From the earliest days of the family candy business, Coral was working day and night while still attending school. He and his younger brother were delegated the responsibility of running the candy-making machines and packing the product. Mm-hmm. Wink, I'm just kidding. Which his stepfather sold on his sales route. This route often involved West traveling to Houston, where much of the product was sold. Dean Coral. Um, from 1954 to 1958, he attended Bider High School, where he was regarded as a well-behaved student who achieved satisfactory grades. As he had been the case in childhood, Coral was also considered somewhat of a loner. Could you please quit smelling your armpits? I was not. Yes, you were. No, I was not. As he had been the case of his childhood, Coral was also considered somewhat of a loner. Once again, I'll say that. Although he is known to have occasionally dated girls in his teenage years. And at Bider High School, Coral's only major interest was the high school brass band, in which he played (laughs) trombone. (laughs) What's funny at least, about that? At least You're such a bully. At least it wasn't the flute or something. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. Well, he is, was the Pied Piper. It's I not mean. a manly instrument. But it is. So manly. <laughs> okay. What's manlier than playing a the flute? flute. A the piccolo. Flute. A piccolo, yeah. Oh, my God. Coral graduated from Vider High School in the summer of 1958. And... Shortly thereafter, he and his family moved to the northern outskirts of Houston so that the family candy business could be closer to the city where the majority of their product was sold. Coral's family opened a new shop, so they were out their garage, and they named it Pecan Prince, like I said, in reference to the brand name of the family product. Yeah, I understand that, but they're selling candy. Pecan candies. They're made of pecans. Yep, yeah, with the candy shell. Oh, so good. Okay. Cool. In 1960, 
At the request of his mother, Coral moved to Indiana to live with his widowed grandmother. During this period of time, Coral formed a close relationship with a local girl, although he rejected a marriage proposal that this girl made to him in 1962. How much would it suck to be the girl and propose and get turned down? I know, that would suck, because that doesn't happen very often. (laughs) Coral lived in Indiana for almost two years, but returned to Houston in 1962 to help with the family candy business, which by this time had moved to Houston Heights. He later moved into an apartment of his own above the shop. Which would be great because if you woke up in the middle of the night, you could just go downstairs and get some candy. That's true. Carl's mother divorced Jake West in 1963 and opened a new candy business, which she named Coral Candy Company. So original. <laughs> it really is. Dean was appointed as vice president of the new family business. The same year, one of the teenage male employees of Coral Candy Company complained to Coral's mother that Dean had made sexual advances towards him. In response, Mary West simply fired the employee that complained. Really? Yes. She's like, how dare you complain my son was making sexual advances towards you? No more free candy for you. Out. (laughs) Coral was drafted into the United States Army on August 10th of 1964, and he was assigned to Fort Polk, Louisiana, for basic training. He was later assigned to Fort Benning, Georgia, to train as a radio repairman before his permanent assignment to Fort Hood, Texas. Are you keeping track? Yeah. Okay. I'm listening. According to the official military records, Coral's period of service in the Army was unblemished. Dean, however, reportedly hated military service. He applied for a hardship discharge on the grounds that he was needed in his family's business. The Army granted his request and he was given an honorable discharge on June 11th of 1965 after only 10 months of service. Reportedly, Dean divulged to some of his close friends after his release from the United States Army that it was during his period of service that he had first realized that he was homosexual and had experienced his first homosexual encounters. Other acquaintances noted subtle changes in Coral's mannerisms when in the company of teenage males after He had completed his service in the Army and returned to Houston. And that led them to believe that he may have possessed homosexual tendencies. Sometimes his wrist would flick down and stuff. Oh, my gosh. And he'd be like, you want some candy? You want some candy, Dad? (laughs) (laughs) The candy man can. (laughs) Who can make a nut ride? The candy man can. (laughs) (laughs) Following his honorable discharge... From the Army, Dean returned to Houston Heights and resumed the position he had held as vice president of his family's candy business. Dean's former stepfather had retained ownership of the family's candy business following his mother's divorce in 1963, and competition between the two firms was fierce. 
I'm telling you what. These candy businesses are like, I've got hardship myself. Well, that's why you ain't getting nobody. <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you doing? As had been the case in his teenage years, Dean increased the number of hours he devoted to the candy business to satisfy an increasing demand for his family's product. In 1965, the Coral Candy Company relocated to 22nd Street, and this was directly across the street from Helms Elementary School. Dean was known to give free candy to local children, and in particular, to teenage boys. As a result, he earned himself the nickname, The Candyman. The company also employed by... I don't know if that many teenage boys is going to go for candy. Exactly. I don't understand that part. I don't understand. I guess everybody's got a fat boy inside of them. Oh, that was dirty. <laughs> That was dirty <laughs> south. The company also employed a small workforce, and he was seen to behave flirtatiously towards several teenage male employees. Dean is also known to have installed a pool table at the rear of the candy factory. Oh, wow. <laughs> the rear you get it, hole in one, just kidding. <laughs> Where employees and local use would congregate. <clears throat> in 1967, Dean befriended 12-year-old David Owen Brooks, and this is where he comes into the picture. Mm-hmm. He was, at the time, a bespectacled, which means he wore glasses. Yes, I know what spectacles mean. I said bespectacled. Okay. (laughs) Sixth grade student and one of the many children to who he gave free candy to. And Brooks initially became one of Coral's many youthful close companions. The youth regularly socialized with Coral and various teenage boys who would congregate at the rear of the candy company. He also joined Dean on the regular trips he took to South Texas's beaches in the company of several youths. And later, heart to the fact that Coral was the first adult male who did not mock his appearance. Whenever Brooks told Dean he needed cash, he was given money. And the youth began to view Dean as a father figure. Father figure. Upon Coral's urging, a sexual relationship gradually developed between the two. <laughs> Beginning in 1969. (laughs) Coincidence? I think not. Dean paid Brooks in cash or with gifts to allow him to perform fellatio on the youth. Oh, that was so. (laughs) That was so. so, That was dirty. That was dirty. Dirty South, baby. Brooks' parents were divorced, okay? His father lived in Houston, and his mother had relocated to Beaumont. Beaumont. Yes. And that was a city 85 miles east of Houston. In 1970, when he was 15, Brooks dropped out of Waltrip High School and moved to Beaumont to live with his mother. And whenever he visited his father in Houston, he also visited Dean Coral, 
who allowed him to stay at his apartment if he wished to. Later the same year, Brooks moved back to Houston and by his own admission began regarding Dean's apartment as his second home. By the time Brooks dropped out of high school, Dean's mother and Joyce, his half-sister, had moved to Colorado after the failure of her third marriage and the closing of the family's candy company. Get the hint to quit marrying her. Although she often talked to her eldest son on the telephone, his mother never saw him again. Oh, I thought it was a tear. I think it's just some water. (laughs) Following the closure of the candy company, Dean took a job as an electrician at the Houston Lighting and Power Company, where he tested electrical relay systems. He worked in this employment until the day he was killed by Elmer Wayne Henley. Now, between 1970 and 1973, Dean is known to have killed a minimum of 28 victims. All of his victims were males aged 13 to 20, most of whom were in their mid-teens. Most victims were abducted from Houston Heights, which was then a low-income neighborhood northwest of downtown Houston. With most abductions, he was assisted by one or both of his teenaged accomplices. Several victims were friends of either or both of Dean's accomplices. Others were individuals with whom Dean had himself become acquainted prior to their abduction and murder. And two other victims, Billy Balch and Gregory Winkle, were former employees of the Coral Candy Company. Not laughing because they're a victim, but Winkle is a funny last name. (laughs) Mr. Winkle. (laughs) Who likes Mr. Winkle? (laughs) Mr. Tinkle does. Coral's victims were usually lured in one of two vehicles that he owned. He owned a Ford Econoline van, which I'm going to be like, I'll pass and walk. You know, a a lot of serial killers own those vans. The other vehicle he owned was a Plymouth GTX with an offer of a party or a lift. And then he would drive them to his house and there they were given alcohol or some drugs and then they would pass out. Mm -hmm. Then they would be tricked into putting on handcuffs or simply grabbed by force. They were then stripped naked and tied to either Dean's bed or usually they were tied to a plywood torture board, which was regularly hung on a wall. Once tied and manacled, the victims would be sexually assaulted, beaten, tortured, and sometimes after several days, Killed by strangulation or shooting. Their bodies were then tied in plastic sheeting and buried in any one of four places. A rented boat shed, a beach on the Bolivar Peninsula, Peninsula, God Peninsula. Darn. Shut up. <laughs> a woodland near Lake Sam. And the reason there was because the family owned a lakeside log cabin or a beach in Jefferson County. But in several instances, Dean forced his victims to either 
telephone or write to their parents and tell them that they were missing. So that would kind of make the parents not be as worried for their safety. Okay. Dean is also known to have retained um, trophies or keepsakes, usually keys from his victims. During the years in which he abducted and murdered young men, Dean often changed addresses. However, until he moved to Pasadena in the spring of 1963, he always lived in or close to Houston Heights. Coral killed his first known victim, an 18-year-old college freshman named Jeffrey Conan, on September 25th of 1970. Conan vanished while hitchhiking with another student from the University of Texas to his parents' home in Houston. He was dropped off alone at the corner of Westheimer Road and South Voss Road near the uptown area of Houston. At the time of Conan's disappearance, Coral lived in an apartment on Yorktown Street near the intersection with Westheimer Road. Dean likely offered to drive Conan to his parents' home, and guess what? Conan evidently accepted it. David Brooks led police to the body of Jeffrey Conan on August 10th of 1973. The body was buried at High Island Beach. Forensic scientists deduced that the youth had died of asphyxiation caused by manual strangulation and a cloth gag that had been placed in his mouth. The body was buried beneath a large rock covered with a layer of lime, wrapped in plastic, naked, bound hand and foot, suggesting he was, had also been violated. Around the time of Conan's murder, David Brooks interrupted Dean in the act of assaulting two teenage boys with whom Dean had strapped to a plywood torture board. Dean promised Brooks a car in return for him shutting the hell up. A car? A car, yeah. Okay. I'd be like, not the van, bitch. No. Brooks accepted the offer, and Dean later bought him a green Chevrolet Corvette. Really? He actually did it? Yeah. Brooks was later told by Dean that the two boys had been murdered, and he was offered $200 for any boy that he could lure to his apartment. Wow. Wow. On December 13, 1970, David Brooks lured two 14-year-old Spring Branch youths named James Glass and Danny Yates away from a religious rally, which I'm sure took a lot of luring. Like, hey, do you really want to sit here or do you want to come in my green Corvette? Yes, sir! <laughs> Held in the Heights District of Houston and took them to Dean's Yorktown apartment. Glass was an acquaintance of Brooks, who at Brooks suggesting had previously visited Dean's address. Both youths were tied to opposite sides of the torture board. One on one side, one on the other. That would be opposite sides. Yes, I know that. You said opposite sides. And then they were raped, strangled, and buried in the boat shed. Six weeks after the double murder of Glass and Yates on January 30th of 1971, Brooks and Coral encountered 
two teenage brothers named Donald and Jerry Waldrop walking toward their parents' home. The Waldrop brothers had been driven to a friend's home by their father and had begun walking home after learning their friend was not at home. Both boys were enticed into Dean's van and driven to an apartment that Dean rented on Magnum Road where they were raped, tortured, strangled, and then buried in the boat shed. Between March and May of 1971, Dean abducted and killed three further victims, all of whom lived in Houston Heights and all of whom were buried towards the rear of the rented boat shed. In each of these abductions, Brooks is known to have been a participant. One of these three victims, 15-year-old Randall Harvey, was last seen by his family on the afternoon of March 9th, cycling towards Oak Forest, where he worked part-time as a gas station attendant. Harvey was also driven to Coral's Magnum Road. You like how I say that every time? Magnum. (laughs) Yeah, Magnum Road. Real big. Apartment, where he was subsequently killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. And the other two victims, 13-year-old David Hillengeist, don't pick at his name, he can't help him, and 16-year-old Gregor, Gregory Malley Winkle, <laughs> <laughs> were abducted and killed together on the afternoon of May 29th of 1971. And as had been the case with parents of other victims of Dean's, both sets of parents launched a frantic search for their sons. One of the youths who voluntarily offered to distribute posters to the parents had printed off offering a reward for information leading to the boy's whereabouts was 15-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley, a lifelong friend of Hillegeist. The youth pinned the reward posters around the heights and attempted to reassure Hillegeist's parents that they there may be an innocent explanation for the boy's absence. Mm. On August 17th, 1971, Dean and Brooks encountered a 17-year-old acquaintance of Brooks named Reuben Watson Haney walking home from a movie theater in Houston. Brooks persuaded Haney to attend a party at an address Dean had moved to on San Felipe Street. Haney agreed and was taken to Dean's home where he was strangled and buried in the boat shed. That's got to be one large boat shed. (laughs) And I'm saying, but a boat shed is, so is that not like a boat dock shed, like over the water? Because how are they burying them? How are they buried? I'm guessing it's out of the water, though. What I'm thinking of. it's, It's like... You covered know, over the yeah, water. Yeah, it's like a dock. Like a garage almost. on the water. Yeah, it's like a dock. So almost. I'm guessing that's not what this is. No, I don't think it is. Anyway, well, in September 1971, Dean moved to another apartment in the Heights. Oh, my God. 915 Columbia. Nine. <laughs> 915 Nine. Columbia St. David. Oh, wait. St. what? Yeah, St. David Brook. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, And Brooks later stated that he had assisted Dean in the abduction and murder of the two youths during the time David 
Ahmed Dean resided at this address. Now, one youth was killed just before Wayne Henley came into the picture. In his confession, Brooks stated that the youth killed immediately prior to Henley's involvement in the murders was abducted from the Heights and kept alive for four days before he was murdered. The identity of both of these two victims remains unknown. In the winter of 1971, Brooks introduced Elmer Wayne Henley to Dean Coral. Henley was likely lured to Dean's address as an intended victim. However, Dean evidently decided the youth would make a good accomplice and offered him the same fee, $200 for any boy that he could bring to his apartment. Informing Henley that he was involved in a white slavery ring operating from Dallas. What the world? Okay. You bring me some yes, white I boys, I'll give you $200 because I got me a white slavery ring going on. Exactly. Sure. But he didn't get a car. Well. <laughs> he didn't get to get a car. He didn't ask for one again. <laughs> Another guy got Okay. Henley later stated that for several months, he completely ignored Dean's offer. However, in early 1972, he decided to accept the offer as he and his family were in very bad financial circumstances. Let me ask you something. Just say that you lived in like a city, a neighborhood, something like that. If they, because, because the, you know, money is different now. Just say a thousand dollars. You know, to bring a guy. Just don't a ask guy, me Just this. ask, would you do it? No. I don't think I wouldn't either. That's too much of a risk. It's too, because whenever he is asked, it's caught, I'm going to You're going to get called too, because he's going to. Not to mention, I don't want to anyone to be hurt. Because they're going to, I don't know. You're such a, okay. According to Henley, the first abduction he participated in occurred during the time Dean resided at 925 Schuler Street. If Henley's statement is to be believed, the victim was abducted from the Heights in February or early March of 1972. And in the statement that Henley gave to police following his arrest, the youth stated that he and Coral picked up a boy at the corner of 11th and Stutewood and lured him to Dean's home on the promise of smoking some marijuana. No, that's not too tempting for nah. me. <laughs> At Coral's residence, using a ruse he and Coral had prepared, Henley cuffed his own hands behind his back, then freed himself with a key that he had hidden in his back pocket. And then he tricked That's the smart. youth into donning the handcuffs before leaving him alone with Dean. Oh. <laughs> and he believed that he, Dean was going to sell him into the sexual slavery ring. Oh, my God. The identity of this victim is not conclusively known, although it's possible the youth was Willard Branch, a 17-year-old Oak Forest youth, known to both Dean and Henley, who disappeared on February 9th of 1972 and whose emasculated body was found buried in the boat shed. A month later... Henley, Brooks, and Coral encountered an 18-year-old acquaintance of Henley's named Frank Aguirre, leaving a restaurant on Yale Street, where the youth worked. Henley called Aguirre over to Dean's van and invited the youth to drink some beer and smoke some marijuana. 
with the trio at Dean's apartment. Aguirre agreed and followed the trio to Dean's home in his Rambler. Inside Dean's house, Aguirre smoked marijuana with the trio before picking up a pair of handcuffs Dean had left on his table. And Dean pounced upon the youth, (laughs) pushed him onto the table, and cuffed his hands behind his back. Henley later claimed that he had not known of Dean's true intentions toward Aguirre. Really? Yeah. In a 2010 interview, he claimed to have attempted to persuade Dean not to assault and kill Aguirre once Dean and Brooks had bound and gagged the youth. However, Dean refused, informing Henley that he had raped, tortured, and killed the previous victim he had assisted in abducting and that he intended to do the same with Aguirre. So get up for it, is what he said. <coughs> Once again, Henley was paid for luring the victim to Coral's home and subsequently assisted Coral and Brooks in Aguirre's burial at High Island Beach. You pauper. Despite the revelations that Dean was killing the boys that he and Brooks had assisted in abducting, Henley nonetheless became an active participant in the abductions and murders. Within a month, on April 20th, 1972, he assisted Dean and Brooks in the abduction of another youth. So who was the, okay, who was the first accomplice of him? Who was that again? Okay, we have David Brooks and we have Elmer Wayne Henley. Yeah, who was that, who was the first one? Wasn't that... Was that Elmer? Yes. Okay. Where was I? Within one month, he assisted Coral and Brooks in the abduction of another youth, a 17-year-old friend of his named Mark Scott. Now, Scott was grabbed by Dean and Brooks, and he was forced and he fought furiously against attempts by Dean to secure him to the torture board. He even attempted to stab his attackers with a knife. However, Scott saw Henley pointing a pistol toward him, and according to Brooks, Scott just gave up. Oh, no. Scott was tied to the torture board and suffered the same fate as a choir. Well, at least he put up a hell of a fight, because most people would have just been like, probably gave up. Yeah, but you know, you think about it. When it comes to your life or death, you just you kind of tend to. I mean, I say you just go all I, out because even, you know I, you're probably going to die. I anyway. even told you today, like, okay, whenever you're sitting there or laying there or whatever, tied up, and you break free, you really <coughs> don't have as much energy as some people may think to get up and you know try Ex- to try to fight them. Except for whenever the adrenaline. Yeah, and like, until that, but I mean, like, whenever you're crawling or something like that, you really don't have that much energy. But according to Brooks, Henley was especially sadistic in his participation in the murders. Before Dean vacated the address on June 26, Henley assisted Dean and Brooks in the abduction and murder of a further two youths named Billy Balk and Johnny DeLome. In Brooks's confession, he stated that both youths were tied 
to Dean's bed, and after their torture and rape, Henley manually strangled Balt, then shouted, Hey, Johnny! and shot DeLome in the forehead, with the bullet exiting through the youth's ear. DeLome then pleaded with Henley, Wayne, please don't! before he too was strangled. Both youths were buried at High Island Beach. Oh, no. During the time... Coral resided at Schuler Street. The trio lured a 19-year-old named Billy Ridinger to the house. Ridinger was tied to the plywood board, tortured and abused by Dean Coral. Oh, my gosh. He really loves that plywood board, dude. Yeah. Seems like you would use something besides wood, though, because blood and stuff would. Like metal or a tape, a metal table or something. Yeah, stainless steel would be pretty nice. Much more sanitary. Yeah. Brooks later claimed he persuaded Dean to allow Ridinger to be released and the youth was allowed to leave the residence. On another occasion during the time Coral resided at Schuler Street, Henley knocked Brooks unconscious as he entered the house. Coral then tied Brooks to his bed and assaulted the youth repeatedly before releasing him. Despite the assault, Brooks continued to assist Coral in the abductions of the victims. Are you serious? Yeah. That's so stupid, dude. I think that would be the time that I don't have. I don't think, I think that I'd go. I don't think I have the Corvette, and I think I'm yeah, going to walk to I the police. I think I would go to the police. After vacating the Schuler residence, Coral moved to an apartment at Westcott Towers, where in the summer of 1972, he is known to have killed a further two victims. The first of these victims, 17-year-old Stephen Sickman, Sickman, was last seen leaving a party held in the Heights shortly before midnight. The youth was savagely bludgeoned about the chest with a blunt instrument before he was strangled and buried in the boat shed. Approximately one month later, on or about August 21st, a 19-year-old youth named Roy Bunton was abducted while walking to his job as an assistant in a Houston shoe store. Bunton was shot twice in the head and was also buried in the boat shed. Oh, my God. Boat shed, the boat shed, the boat shed. God. Boat shed, boat shed, boat shed. Good Lordy. Neither youth was named by either Brooks or Henley as being a victim of Coral, and both youths were only identified as victims in 2011. Less than two months after the murder of Roy Button on October 2nd, 1972, Henley and Brooks encountered two Heights youths named Wally J. Now, I don't know the slide. <laughs> Wally, okay. Wally. Simonu and Richard Hembray. Henley later informed police he and Brooks had spotted the two youths as they walked towards Hembry's home. Simonu and Hembry were enticed into Brooks's Corvette and driven to Coral's Westcott Towers apartment. That evening, Simonu is known, <laughs> is known uh-huh. to have phoned his mother's home and to have shouted the word, Mama, into the receiver before the connection was terminated. Oh, poor thing. The following morning, Hembry was accidentally shot in the mouth by Henley. Accidentally. I don't know. Wait a second. That means that accident. I don't. I don't well, he didn't that. die. So, like, if if you put the gun in your mouth and you accidentally pull the trigger, I mean, technically it's an accident, right. but it's really, it's really not. 
Several hours later, both youths were strangled to death and subsequently buried in a common grave inside Coral's boat shed. Mm. Directly above the bodies of James Glass and Danny Yates. How did it not smell, though? Good question. Oh, that he did put lime, so that would help with the smell. I don't care. How, you know how many people he's... <clears> and there had to be some really good plastic wrap. Had to be, because you know how many people he's done putting that boat A in? lot. A lot. The following month, a 19-year-old Heights youth named Richard Kepner disappeared on his way to a phone booth. Kepner was strangled and buried at High Island Beach. Altogether, a minimum of 10 teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19 were murdered between February and November of 1972, five of whom were buried at High Island Beach and five inside Coral's boat shed. Hmm. On January 20th of 1973, Coral moved to an address on Work Road in the Spring Branch District of Houston, Texas. Within two weeks of moving into this address, he had killed a 17-year-old named Joseph Lyles. Lyles was known to both Coral and Brooks. He had lived on Antoine Drive, the same Brooks resided in 1973. On March 7th, Coral vacated his work road apartment and moved into an address his father had vacated in Pasadena, 2020 Lamar Drive. Dum, dum, dum. No known victims were killed from February to June 3rd of 1973. However, Coral is known to have suffered from a hydrocele. What's that? I knew you were going to ask. <laughs> well, you see, son, a hydrocele is, is whenever your testicles or your balls <laughs> become enlarged. Okay. Because it's fluid continues to get trapped around the little sack around the nut inside your nut sack. Now, this <laughs> you is probably this, had to, you probably had to look that oh, up. Oh, I looked it you. up. Yeah, I know, I could tell. But it happens a lot with young children and it usually goes away on its own, but it can happen to an adult male if in if it gets damaged. You think it hurts? It's, if it gets damaged or in very hot weather, I guess if your nuts just get suck up all that, that sweat, heat, all that nasty it, sweat, all that fluid just trapped there. Oh, golly. But it's, they say that it is usually not painful. Then why, did, then why, if it's not painful, then why? Maybe you your junk quits kill? working. Oh, that might be why, because he knew that if he, he wouldn't feel. Nothing if if he got any more victims, what do you think? Maybe. Maybe. That's a good note, ain't it? Might be. You can go on. Okay. <laughs> In addition, around the time of Lyle's murder, Henley had temporarily moved away from Houston to Mount Pleasant in an apparent effort to distance himself from Coral. These facts may account for the sudden lull in killings. Nonetheless, from June, Coral's rate of killings increased dramatically, and both Henley and Brooks later testified to the increase in the level of brutality of the murders committed. Because he got that drive back. With a vengeance. That's what it was, yep. 
Henley later compared the acceleration in the frequency of killings and the increase in the brutality exhibited by Coral towards his victims to being like a bloodlust, adding that he and Brooks would instinctively know when Coral was to announce that he needed to do a new boy. Mm. Due to the fact that he would appear restless, smoking cigarettes and making reflex movements. On June 4th, Henley and Coral abducted a 15-year-old named William Ray Lawrence. The youth was last seen alive by his father on 31st Street. After three days of abuse and torture, Lawrence was strangled before being buried at Lake Sam. Less than two weeks later, a 20-year-old named Raymond Blackburn was abducted, strangled, and buried at Lake Sam. Hey, Lake Sam is in like... It's a lake. You don't mean the boat shed, do you? No. That's That's a new place, right? This is a different place. Finally. On July 6th of 1973, Wayne Henley began attending classes at the Coach's Driving School in Bel Air where he became acquainted with a 15-year-old named Homer Lewis Garcia. The following day, Garcia phoned his mother to say he was spending the night with a friend. Oh, my God. Well, he was shot and left to bleed to death in Coral's bathtub before he was also buried at Lake Sam. Wow. Five days later, on July 12th, a 17-year-old Orange County youth named John Sellers was bound Shot to death and buried in High Island Beach. That's a new place. <clears throat> no. Oh no, that was that was the last. No, they've place. already had what five buried think, there. Who do you think found all those people if they were buried at a beach? I don't know. Oh, trash collectors. No, no, no. What? The um accomplices showed them to the bodies. Really? Yes, we'll get there. Okay. In July 1973, David Brooks married his pregnant fiance. And Henley temporarily became Coral's sole procurer of victims, assisting in the abduction and murder of a further three Heights youths between July 19th and July 25th. You know, they probably got like a little, probably not like a big deal, but probably not the death penalty for turning in. We'll get there. And we will get there. Didn't matter about turning them in considering one of them shot and killed him. But we'll get there. Oh, never mind. Oh, yeah, you did say that. (laughs) According to Henley, these three abductions were the only three that occurred after his becoming an accomplice to Coral, in which David Brooks was not a participant. One of these three victims, 15-year-old Michael Balk, was last seen by his family on July 19th on his way to get a haircut. (laughs) Of course it was. I wonder if we went to the same barber. Hopefully it was me. a good haircut. Hopefully it was a different barber than me. He was strangled and buried at Lake Sam. The other two victims, in whose murder Brooks was not a participant, Charles Cobble and Marty Ray Jones, were abducted together on the afternoon of July 25th. Henley himself buried both youth's body in the boat shed. You know, you think in the boat shed. Oh my gosh, the boat shed again. <laughs> On August 3rd, 1973, Coral killed his last victim, a 13-year-old boy from South Houston named James Draymala. Draymala was abducted by Brooks and Coral while riding his bike in Pasadena and driven to Coral's home, where he was tied to Coral's torture board 
He was raped. He was tortured and strangled with a cord before being buried in the boat shed. Mm. David Brooks <laughs> later described Dre Mala as a small blonde boy for whom he had bought a pizza and in whose company he had spent 45 minutes before the youth was attacked. On the evening of August 7, 1973, Henley, aged 17, so Henley's only 17 at this time, at for this real? point, yeah, invited a 19-year-old named Timothy Cordell Curley to attend a party at Coral's Pasadena house. Dude, I mean, everybody just like, I mean, if a random person invited me to a party, I don't think that I would have. But it was the 70s. I'm just saying, like, man, people, I guess people trusted everybody then, but. Well, Curly, who was intended to be Coral's next victim, accepted the offer. David Brooks was not present at the time. The two youths arrived at Coral's house where they sniffed paint fumes and drank alcohol until midnight before leaving the house to purchase sandwiches. Henley and Curly then drove back to Houston Heights and Curly parked his vehicle close to Henley's home. Henley exited the vehicle and walked towards the home of 15-year-old Rhonda Williams, a friend of his who had been beaten by her drunken father that evening and who had decided to temporarily leave home until her father became sober. Henley invited Rhonda to spend the evening at Coral's home. Rhonda agreed and climbed into the back seat of Curly's Volkswagen. The trio then drove toward Coral's Pasadena residence. At approximately 3 a.m. on the morning of August 8th, 1973. Who's Rhonda? Okay. <laughs> what? Rhonda. Okay, I heard you talking about her. I know that, but I mean, yes. what does she have to do with it? Well, Rhonda was a friend, a of, friend of Henley's. So she knew about it? No. But oh, she was a friend okay, of Henley's, okay, okay. and she had just gotten and beat up just, by her dad. Oh, so she was just coming And so with. Henley said she wanted, she was running away from home for a little Let's bit until the yeah. daddy sobered up. Okay, okay. Henley said, sense. come on, rob me. We can go to a friend of mine's house. Yep, that makes sense. She said, okay. All right. At approximately 3 a.m. on the morning of August 8th, 1973, Henley and Curly returned to Coral's home, accompanied by Rhonda Williams. Coral was furious that Henley had brought a freaking girl to his oh house. Oh, my God. Telling him in private that he had ruined everything. I think I would be getting a little scared. Henley explained that Williams had argued with her father that evening and did not wish to return home. Carl appeared to calm down and offered the trio beer marijuana. Mm. The three teenagers began drinking and smoking it up with Henley and Curly also sniffing them paint fumes. No, oh my God. That just sounds... And Coral sat and watched them intently. There was a little jump in his pants, they said. <laughs> After approximately two hours, Henley, Curly, and Williams all passed out. Great. Henley awoke to find himself lying upon his stomach and Coral snapping handcuffs onto his wrists. 
His mouth had been taped shut and his ankles had been bound together. I would be so confused. You just waking up and being high and then you... <laughs> Curly and Williams laid beside Henley, securely bound with nylon rope, gagged with adhesive tape, and lying face down on the floor. Curly had been stripped naked. Noting Henley had awoken, Coral removed the gag from its mouth. Henley protested in vain against Coral's actions. Whereupon, Coral reiterated that he was freaking angry with him for bringing a damn girl to his freaking house. Yeah. And that he was going to kill all three teenagers. Oh. Of course, after he assaulted and tortured Curly. He repeatedly kicked Williams in the chest then dragged Henley into his kitchen and placed a twenty-two caliber pistol against his stomach, threatening to shoot him. Henley calmed Coral, promising to participate in the torture and murder of both Williams and Curly if Coral released him. Coral agreed and untied Henley, then carried Curly and Williams into his bedroom and tied them to opposite sides of his torture board. My goodness. Curly on his stomach, Buttocks up. Yep. And William... On her back. Slash Rhonda. Mm-hmm. Coral then handed Henley a hunting knife and ordered him to cut away Rhonda's clothes, insisting that while he would rape and kill Curly, Henley was going to do the same thing to Rhonda. I don't think that I could ever do that if it came down to it. I don't know. Well, Henley began cutting away Rhonda's clothes. As Coral undressed and began to assault and torture Curly. I mean, because you knew what was going to happen whenever he brought her there, right? No, because he was just, he, he wasn't bringing her there for that. He was just bringing her there to get her away from the dad. I know, but why would you bring... That was his friend. I mean, he, was, he didn't like girls. Exactly. He so didn't think he'd piss he... him off that much. Mm, he doesn't like girls. He's never done anything to a girl. Kill him. Yeah, I guess not. But Both Curly and Williams had awakened by this point. Curly began writhing and shouting as Rhonda, whose gag Henley had removed, lifted her head and asked Henley, Is this for real? To which Henley answered, Yes. Williams, Rhonda, then asked Henley, Are you going to do anything about it? Oh, wow. Henley then asked Coral whether he might take Rhonda into another room. He was having trouble getting it up. Wow. Coral ignored him, and Henley then grabbed Coral's pistol, shouting, You've gone too far, Dean! As Coral clambered off Curly. That's what I'm talking about. Henley then shouted, I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all my friends. Coral approached Henley saying, Kill me, Wayne. Henley stepped back a few paces as Coral continued to advance upon him while naked, shouting, You won't do it. Well, Henley fired at Coral 
hitting him in the forehead. You know what normally happens? They go to shoot him, and there's no freaking bullets in there. It's just us click, and then they end up being dead. Well, the bullet failed to fully penetrate Coral's skull. How does that even happen? Coral continued to lurch towards Henley, whereupon the youth fired a further two rounds, hitting Coral in the left shoulder. That's a twenty-two caliber, right? Yes. Coral spun around and staggered out of the room, butt-ass naked, shot up, hitting the wall of the hallway, blood getting on the hall, on the wall, in the hall. He's probably saying, oi, or something like that. It's only what our us country folks say is, oi. <laughs> and Henley fired three additional bullets into Coral's lower back and shoulder as Coral slid down the wall in the hallway outside the room where the two other teenagers were tied up. Coral died where he fell, his naked body lying face towards the wall. Henley would later recall that having shot Coral, the sole thought dominant in his mind in the moments immediately thereafter was that Coral would have been proud of the way he had reacted to the confrontation. Adding that Coral had been training him to react fast and react greatly. And that was what he had done. After he shot Coral, Henley released Curly and Williams from the torture board. And all three teenagers dressed and discussed what actions they should take. Henley suggested to Curly and Williams that they should simply leave. To which Curly replied... Nah, we could, we should call the police. Henley agreed and looked up the number for the Pasadena police in Coral's telephone directory. Was it not 911? No, they were calling the police, not 911. Yeah, but like, is it not the same thing? At 8.24 a.m. on August 8th, did they even have 911 back then? I don't know. In the 70s, early 70s? I don't know if it had even been invented yet. It might have not. That's probably why they said that they look because 911 is the police. Well, actually, it's a cause. It's emergency. It's emergency. Okay. And he just but they can't they can dispatch police though for you. I know, but he just shot somebody. Is that not an emergency? Well, not now because he's died. Well, he's dead. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not talking about saving him. I'm talking about what happened. At 8.24 a.m. on August 8, 1973, Henley placed a call to the Pasadena police. His call was answered by an operator named Velma Lines. In his call, Henley blurted out to the operator, Y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. Henley gave the address to the operator as 2020 Lamar Drive, Pasadena. As Curly, Williams, and Henley waited upon Coral's porch for the police to arrive, Henley mentioned to Curly that he had done that four or five times, meaning killing by shooting. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like he needs to be... I mean, four or five times, you would have thought maybe you could have like killed him before six, seven be, bullets. He wanted to do that. He wanted to do it. Minutes later, a Pasadena police car arrived at 2020 Lamar Drive. 
The three teenagers were sitting on the porch outside the house, sipping on iced tea. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and the officer noted that the 22 caliber pistol on the driveway near the trio. Henley told the officer that he was the individual who had made the call and indicated that the body of Dean Coral was inside the house. After confiscating the pistol and placing Henley, Williams, and Curley inside the patrol car, the officer entered the bungalow and discovered Coral's body inside the hallway. The officer returned to the car and read Henley his Miranda rights. In response, Henley shouted, I don't care who knows about it. I've got to get it off my chest. Curley later told detectives that before the police officer arrived at Lamar Drive, Henley had told him, I could have gotten $200 for you. Wow. In custody at the Pasadena Police Department, Henley was initially questioned in relation to the murder of Dean Coral. Henley recounted the events of the previous evening and that morning, explaining that he had shot Coral in self-defense. Okay, and that's where we're going to stop today, and we will do the conclusion of this yep. story, but we will not make you wait the whole week. We'll It'll probably be... do it around Tuesday or Wednesday. As always, I've been Stan. And I'm always Drew. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to check your feeds. Yep. Bye-bye.